you have your Bibles, go ahead and go with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Today we are going to be going through the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. And um, I'm really, really excited about where we are and what God has to say to us through this text this morning. But while, while you're flipping, turning, I'm just going to pray. Father, you are the greatest of all time. Lord, there's none like you, there's never been any like you, and there will never be any like you, God. Lord, you're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You're all that we need. God, so many times, Lord, we exhaust ourselves trying to earn your favor, God, and, and earn your acceptance, Lord, when the reality is that, you, we, God, we've been accepted on behalf of Jesus. Jesus came in our place, and he died in our place on the cross, and he, he lived the sinless life that we could never live, God, and because of that, we can stand acceptable before you. And Lord, I pray today that it would grip our hearts, Father, that we would see the simplicity of the gospel, Lord, and have a fervor to fight for that simplicity. Father, I pray today, God, Lord, that we would just grab a glimpse of grace. Where we sang it earlier, this is the story of a bride in white waiting for a wedding day. Lord, the reality is so many times we're not dressed in white. God, so many times we come to the altar with you and we're, we're tattered and our dress is torn. God, our clothes are torn and our lives are dirty and stained with sin, Lord. And Lord, any other groom on the planet would in that moment reject the bride. But Lord, you just give us a new life. You don't just clean us up. You give us a new heart and you give us a new mind and you change us forever and you receive us, God, just as we are. And Father God, I pray that we never lose sight of that, God, Lord, that that, that gospel, that truth, that you take dirty men and women who are stained by sin, you don't just kind of clean them up. You don't just kind of Clorox them a little bit, God. You give them a, a heart transplant and a mind transplant. God, you completely change us by the power of your grace and the glory of your gospel. So today, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody together said, amen. 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 So we've been in the book of Galatians now. This is week number three. And the first two weeks of Galatians, we, it's Paul kind of defending the gospel. If you're just catching up with us, maybe visiting us today, the, where we've been is that there were these guys called the Judaizers, and, and, and Paul was preaching a gospel that said, it's Christ alone. For salvation, what you need is you need Christ alone, and you need Christ crucified, and you need to believe that Jesus Christ took your sins to the cross, that he came and lived a sinless life, and he died in your place on the cross, and he was in the grave for three days, and he chilled with his guys for uh, about a month or a little over a month, and then he ascended into heaven to return one day, and now he's seated in the right hand of God. And that in its simplicity, very quickly, is the gospel. That Jesus did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And it's where we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2. He's kind of had this battle with these guys that came in and said, yeah, 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 listen, Jesus is cool. Like, that's really, we really appreciate this whole dying on the cross thing. And, and that kind of gospel, you know, Paul, you almost had it. That's really what they were saying, these Judaizers. Paul, you, you almost had the gospel, but really, um, we're going to need uh, the new converts, the Gentiles. We're going to need them to be circumcised, and we're going to need, what we're going to need is for you to kind of turn to some dietary laws and go back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. What they were really saying at the end of the day is, listen, Paul, that sounds good and all, but Jesus isn't, he's just not quite enough. 
And this was the theology that had crept into the church. And as we said the last couple weeks, we see that sometimes come to the surface in our own churches, right? If we don't give a certain amount of money, if we're not there a certain amount of Sundays, or if we don't dress a certain way, or talk a certain way, or look a certain way, then, yeah, Jesus is enough, but you might want to do this too. And Paul says to all of that, hogwash. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus receives us just as we are. Just as we are. And that's the gospel that Paul is defending. And there's three things. My grandmother, I know you guys have heard me talk about my, my Mima a pretty good bit, but, but my Mima makes the best fried chicken in all the world. And something I remember, even as, as a kid, anybody remember those things? They're kind of shaped like this, and they're silver, and you put flour in them. And anybody ever seen those? Like a, like a real life. I used to play with it as a kid. Like, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, and it was just for flour. But anyways, my Mima, even when she fried chicken, she kind of like you know, make dumplings or whatever, and she would, she would use this thing, and, and sometimes that's how I feel when I look at the text, and there's three things that I believe sift to the surface. Like, when we look at verses 1 through 10, I'm going to read them to you. There's three things that sift to the surface that I want us to grab onto together. So let's read. Then after 14 years, this is Paul speaking, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, he was a Gentile. Yet because of false brothers who secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus... So that we might bring us in, that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, and for those who seem to be influential. God shows no partiality. I don't really care who they are. Is what He's saying. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for who he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcision, worked through me for the mind to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter there, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, Barnabas and me, and they said this, we should go to the Gentiles only to remember this one thing, they said. Remember the poor. And Paul said, that thing I was eager to do, that thing I was already doing. So I want to catch you up and show where you are. Some scholars say that this is the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 that we can read about. There's some debate there, that if you, but if you go back to Acts 15, you see where they're kind of settling these theological foundations in the church. And what's incredibly beautiful right here is this is an extremely pivotal moment in the life of the New Testament church. Like, I, I want us to feel that gravity and that weight this morning. This is an incredibly, I mean, pivotal moment. Imagine if the pillars of the New Testament church, if James and Peter and John had said, you know what, Paul, this gospel to where Jesus comes and he gives you grace freely and it's on his work and his efforts. Yeah, that's a good gospel. But, you know, we're kind of with the Judaizers. We, we think, you, you know, you guys, you should circumcise Titus. He should be circumcised. You know what, you should start eating like a Jew and dressing like a Jew and talking like a Jew and walking like a Jew. And Paul, your gospel's good, but it's missing some things. Do you, do you see how the gospel could have been derailed there? It's an incredible part of the scripture where they validate the gospel that Paul is teaching. And for you and I, 
I, I want to show you the three things this morning that sift to the surface for this. And the number one thing is community and fellowship. See, Paul said in the very beginning, he said, after 14 years I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. And you see this pattern, Paul, even as a man, he has Barnabas, who is his peer, who his name actually meant son of encouragement, so it sounds like he was a really cool guy to hang out with. He was never down and out, he was never negative, and he was always kind of cool. So you got Barnabas on his right, kind of his peer, and then he's got Titus. And I want us, for the New Testament church, I want us to see this pattern that Paul is exemplifying. He has someone walking with him. Even in controversy, even in theological wrestle, he has someone walking with him to hold him accountable and help him walk out his faith. Do you see that? He's got this person, this guy that he's doing life with, but not only that, he has Titus with him. If you read in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he said, Titus is a son to me in the faith, meaning that it was very likely that Paul was there when Titus was converted, and Paul has been able to disciple and bring Titus up. He's giving this example of fellowship, accountability, and discipleship. So fellowship and discipleship. Barnabas was a co-laborer. He was theologically sound. He was mature in many ways in his faith. And Titus was a son in the faith. He was, he was a convert earned to Paul. But check this out. Titus was empirical evidence that the gospel was for everyone. Like Titus was not only a disciple of Paul, he was the example that Paul was dragging around. He's like, hey, hey, look at this guy. He's a Gentile. You know all the people that you're saying have to do all these things to be saved in this false gospel that you've heard? Look at this guy. He's a maturing believer who is mature in his faith and he hasn't been circumcised and he's not eating like a Jew or dressing like a Jew and God's done, th- done something special with, you, with him. Would you look at him? And as I was reading this text, it's so convicted because I'm like, God, would anybody want to drag me around as an example of the gospel? But I see this incredible pattern of fellowship in his life. I mean, the church planner of church planners, the apostle of apostle. He has Barnabas with him, somebody that'll hold him accountable. But he's also got Titus. See, I think we forget about that sometimes. Sometimes when it comes to Christianity, it's like we get in these holy huddles and we isolate ourselves. But see, the gospel was for everyone, and we tend to forget that sometimes. Sometimes we treat the gospel like it's a country club or a fraternity or a sorority, like if we give enough money to the church or if we got a brick or something with our name on it, then, then we get some kind of acceptance before God. And the reality is the gospel is not a country club religion. Jesus said, come to me, everybody, come on. No matter what background, no matter what denomination, no matter what race, no matter what you've been through, no matter how much money you make or you don't make, come to me. And what the body of Christ is supposed to look like, which is exemplified here, even in the middle of a debate, is that we should be walking arm in arm with someone who would keep us accountable. And at the same time, we should be taking those who are less mature in the faith in us and pouring our lives into them. It's not a country club where we sign up and now we have some kind of status, so we just get to hang out and I'm a member of First Baptist. What job? Throw that out the window. It's not a country club religion. It was for the broken and the dirty and the downcast and the nobody and the prostitute and for the poor and for the rich, for the clean and for the addict. That's what the gospel is. You see, teacher, I don't really like that. That makes me uncomfortable. Go find another church because that's the gospel. There's this idea that we get the gospel right when we live out the gospel in community. 
Like I said, it's not a so, it's, it's not so, Christianity's not solo flying. There's accountability and there's discipleship. There's affirmation from the church leadership which shows humble submission from Paul to God's plan and his will. I thought this was incredible. Now, Paul said this. He's like, who they are. You remember that little part I read? Who they are, it really makes no matter to me. Paul's like, I don't care who these dudes are. God shows no partiality, but he exemplified to us a willingness to submit himself to other brothers in the faith who were mature in their Christianity. See, that's what Christianity is all about. Once we realize that we've been bought with a price, Scripture says that we weren't redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. When we realize that we didn't earn or buy our salvation, but Jesus gave it to us, we are then called to link up with believers. To begin to walk out our faith, as Scripture says, with fear and trembling. There's no isolation in here. This shows a model. Real briefly, Paul shows this model of the kingdom that it's not about isolation, but it's easy to isolate ourselves. It's easy to refuse to open our life to accountability and correction, and sometimes even encouragement and love. Listen, we live in a society that is very, very easy. Used to, everybody used to sit on the porch together and work together and hang out together and, you know, years ago, but now we, we live in subdivisions and we live on streets where we don't know our neighbors, Right? And we live in places where we don't know the people who live three houses down. You know, like we don't bring cookies to people's door anymore because we're like, they're out, they're out for me. I don't know what's in these cookies. You know? That'd be our first thought now. We're like, thank you so much. You know? Because as a, as a country and a society, we've kind of walled ourselves off. We've isolated ourselves in many ways. But listen, I want you to hear Proverbs 18.1. Oh, I love this. Proverbs 18, verse 1, he says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you read that in, I believe it's the NIV or the NASB version, it says he rages against sound judgment. The man who isolates himself, can I I kind of break this down to 2016 language for you? The guy who isolates himself is a moron. Because in this, in this seed of isolation, you say, TJ, that's a harsh word. Think about it. In this seed of isolation, there's no accountability. There's no discipleship. There's no community. And, and sometimes as a society, we start walling ourselves in, and we don't open up to our Sunday school classes, and we, we don't open up to the believers around us. And to be honest with you, that's partly the church's fault. Because the church for years have been doing prayer lines that really look more like gossip lines sometimes. So I apologize on behalf of the church if that's been your situation. All churches. We get in this habit of isolating ourselves. No, i got to protect myself. I can't, I can't share my sin. I can't share my struggle. I just kind of isolate myself. And it kind of boxes us in. And before we know it, we don't even know how to receive or to give love. And we don't know how to, you know, we, we, we can't hardly communicate with God because surely God wouldn't forgive me for this sin and this sin and this sin. And not only can we not receive correction and rebuke, we can't even receive love. Paul's giving this example here. Look, I, I got somebody with me. I'm, I'm being faithful to walk in accountability. I'm also being faithful to discipleship. Listen, believer, I want you to hear me and I want you to hear me well. If you're walking with Christ and you're not in accountability, listen, if you're not in a Sunday school class, you're not in some kind of discipleship, I don't care if it's a home group, I don't care if it's a Bible study, I don't care, I don't care what you do. You don't have to have a name on it, no title, you know that. But if you're not engaging in some kind of accountability, if you're not allowing others who are mature in the faith to pour into your life, like, listen, you're missing out. 
If you're not allowing your life, if you've been saved and you have the gospel in you, if you're not allowing that to pour into somebody who is an immature believer, maybe somebody's lost and you don't allow the gospel to pour out of you, then you are just wasting space and wasting air. Because the gospel's not about us, it's about community. He said, DJ, put the brakes on, man. We were made for community. We were made for accountability and discipleship. Second point that I want us to see here, and I love this, Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Listen, freedom makes people uncomfortable. And that's what these Judaizers didn't want. They, they wanted to be able to define what a good Christian was. Now, we we kind of do that in our culture. You know, if you don't curse or you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't have premarital sex, we can kind of put a box right here. If you can do those four things, you're a good Christian. That's kind of how we tally it up. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God, even if you are today, if you've got a potty mouth and you're struggling with fornication and you're walking through hard times and, and you know what, you are struggling with alcohol or some kind of addiction, Christ loves you right where you are, but he wants to bring you out of that. That's the gospel. But the Judaizers, man, it made them uncomfortable. See, a lot of times when we come to church, we like to, we like to go to church with people that look like us, that talk like us, walk like us, went to some of the same schools we went to, some of the same neighborhood, lived in the same neighborhoods. I like to do church with people that look like us. But sometimes what breaks my heart about the Sunday morning gathering in this gym is when I look around, it looks nothing like the book of Revelation where he said, I looked out and saw every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Every socioeconomical class, every race was gathered together to glorify and worship God. And it makes me think, man, am I doing my part to pour into people who aren't like me, to pour into people who are lost and broken. Am I doing my part to bring people into the fellowship of the gospel and the kingdom? Freedom's uncomfortable. But see, we're free in Christ today. We're free in Christ. See, these Judaizers didn't make them, they were uncomfortable. They were like, whoa, 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 you guys, like, like you guys are too excited right now. Not, not you guys, I promise. <laughs> You, you, guys are, you guys are enjoying life. You guys are sharing the gospel all over the world. Aren't you sure there should be some more rules? Aren't you sure that you should, you should wear a certain standard of clothing? Aren't you sure that you shouldn't wear makeup or shouldn't wear jewelry? Aren't you sure that you should do these things? And Paul's like, absolutely not. There's freedom in Christ. Christ was crucified and nailed my sin to the cross, and I'm forever forgiven. There's freedom in Christ. And I want to know today, have you experienced that freedom? Tell your face. All right? I'm going to let it sink in. We are free in Christ. And we're freed from sin. When you think about that, that you and I, every single one of us in this room, regardless of where we come from, we were all on the way to hell. A literal place where Scripture says the fire will never die. An incredibly wrathful place where God pours out his wrath for all of eternity. It sounds super scary, and it should. Every one of us without Christ, we were headed there. 
And Christ in his goodness, when he came and he redeemed us, he, he turned us around. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the truck of God's wrath was bearing down on us and Jesus took our place. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and now because of that, you and I have freedom. We're freed from our sin. You know what that means? That we're no longer defined by the shame that we used to carry. You hear me? Well, TJ, you don't, man, you don't know what I did in college. TJ, you don't, you don't know who I took advantage of. TJ, you don't know what I gave myself to. TJ, I'm a, I'm a businessman, and I've made some pretty shady deals, man. And, and man, I don't know, I, I feel my shame is kind of attached to that. TJ, I haven't been the man or the woman I'm supposed to be in the context of my marriage, and I I feel like my shame might be attached to that. TJ, I haven't been the parent that I should be, and I feel this shame attached to that. You know what the gospel does in an instant? It frees us from that sin, and all of that stuff no longer defines us. It's covered by the blood of Jesus forever. The only person that ever brings it up is the accuser of the brethren, the enemy trying to discourage, to kill, steal, and rob our joy. If you're in Christ, you're no longer defined by your sin or your shame. You're defined by the price he paid, and it was perfect. It was perfect. And we're not only freed in Christ, not only freed from sin, but we're free to live. John 10.10 says, the thief comes to, to kill, steal, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have life more abundantly. That word abundantly means to the full. I came that you might have life and have life bubbling over. I'm going to say this, and I had to jot this down because I didn't want to forget to give it to you, that it's okay as a Christian to be fun, to be engaging, be excited. Jesus never intended for his followers to be stale or boring, but Christ made the moment better everywhere he went. I want you to think about this. Everywhere that Christ Jesus went, he made the moment better. Think about the wedding he was at. They were like, Jesus, we're out of wine. Jesus is like, I got a truckload. Right? All right? We won't debate that. That's just what kind of happened. You go on a little further, and people are like, Jesus, we don't have any food. I see some fish and some loaves. Everybody's going to eat. A little, little further, someone's sick, and Jesus, I, I know who you are, and you, you, don't even, you don't even have to come to my house. If you'll just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Or, or the moment this woman with an issue of blood, she's kind of pressing through the crowd, and, and she grabs the hem of a gar- his garment instantly. Glory kind of transfers out of his body and heals her. Listen, every time Jesus showed up, he made the moment better. You know what's amazing about that? Scripture says that you and I are his ambassadors. You know what ambassador means? Personal representation. When we want to represent America in another country, what do we do? We send an ambassador. Jesus takes a lot better care of his ambassadors than our country does. I promise you that. Do you make the moment better? Have you experienced freedom in Christ in such a way that you make the moment better? That you allow the gospel light of Jesus Christ to shine in you and through you in such a way that you are his personal representation and you make the moment better. I, I said it earlier um, in the 930 and I kind of 
alluded to it just a second ago, but there's this guy named Bob Coughlin, and he leads worship, and, and he said he was worshiping one time with his band, and there's this church full of people, and, and it, they were talking about the glory of God and just singing a song of celebration to the Lord, and he said he looked around at his band, he said, what I realize is they all look kind of sad. He's like, so a- after the service, he said, I kind of sat him down, and we were reviewing our, 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 our worship time. He says, hey, guys, are you, are you excited about Jesus? Like, has he done something incredible in your life? And they were all like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. He said, would you just tell your face that for next time we lead worship? And I feel like that's us a lot of times as believers. Like, this incredible exchange has happened in our hearts But sometimes we need to tell our face, we need to tell our attitudes, hey, I've been redeemed. And I'm the personal representation of Christ on this planet. Am I making the moment better? Or am I being a stumbling block between someone and Christ? The last thing that we see in the text when we go there together, it's the last verse. Paul says, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Paul, in the first few verses of the chapter, he gave us this picture, this idea, even in the middle of a theological debate, of fellowship, community. Having someone of accountability and and someone that he was raising up in the faith. And then he talked a little bit about freedom and how the Judaizers were spying it out. They were uncomfortable with the freedom. The last thing that he talks about here in verse 10 before he moves on, kind of switches gears, and that's next week. But he talks about remember the poor and providing for their needs. And it's this kind of exclamation point on this thought and this idea that he's getting to is, hey, remember, I want you to remember, I want you to know, the gospel is not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about how good and how faithful and how powerful he is. And this fellowship, like we fellowship, we encourage and we are accountable, we spur each other on because it's about the gospel and we raise people up in the faith, not because it's about me, but it's because it's about him and I can lead somebody to him puts an exclamation point on that with remember the poor. And so many times when we hear poor, we automatically, and he was referring to Christians in Jerusalem at the time who were struggling financially. And so many times we think, man, he's just talking about giving to the financially poor. And it is. It's easy to jump on a social justice issue or throw a few extra dollars in the benevolence offering, which is a great thing. I think sometimes we forget that we, we live in a generation, we're around people all the time who are relationally, they're just poor. Students, guys, girls, you know, check right here with me for a second. And you know those in school, that kid, and you may even be here, I'm not singling out, but you know that kid that, that may be by themselves? Like everybody's kind of hanging out and doing their thing, and there's that one kid that sits in the same spot all by themselves or at the playground. They're always by themselves in the same spot. We had the opportunity to lead a D-Now this weekend, lead worship. And there were three or 400 teenagers, and all these kids were playing soccer, and all these kids were playing basketball, and there were just hundreds of kids, kind of a couple hundred kids out here playing. There's this one kid, this one kid who's just throwing up a soccer ball and hitting it with a baseball bat, and I was like, that's that kid. And that kid's in every school. He's in every youth group. That kid grows up, and they're sometimes in every office. So everybody else goes out to eat, and that person's just kind of there. And what we don't realize is that in that moment, they're relationally poor, and you get to be the picture of Christ to them. You can be. You can give into their lives. You can be the light and the example of Christ. 
People all around us who are relationally poor. And the last point, probably the most significant, the thing that broke me today, just thinking about it, was there are those around us who are spiritually poor. They're not financially poor. They're not relationally poor. They have tons of friends and tons of money, but at the end of the day, they're bankrupt spiritually. And if the gospel isn't shared with them and they, they are not converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to spend eternally an eternity in a Christless hell. And you and I, as his ambassadors, we, like we hold the bag of money. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like we live in a generation that's continually running to, to Islam or running to self-help or running to the party or the clubs or running to their 401ks or running to their careers and their degrees and they're swiping the ATM. They're like, just give me purpose. Give me hope. Give me acceptance. Give me love. And you know what? Every single time, all they get is a slip of paper that says insufficient funds. But you and I know the way to the place that abounds with love, that abounds with grace, that abounds with acceptance, that abounds with favor. A place where we withdraw grace and mercy and his name's King Jesus. So here's my question today as we wrap up. Number one, are you going to be a part of community and fellowship? Number two, are you going to make the moment better? Are you going to look out for the financially poor, for the relationally poor, and the most important are the spiritually poor? St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. The Apostle Paul, who I think is a little more important, who wrote what we're reading today, says, how will they know without a preacher? Are you willing to make the moment better? If you claim Christ, are you willing to open your mouth and share that you have a road map and you know the way to the place where love and mercy and grace abounds forever? To the place where he gives out new hearts and new minds. Will you submit to fellowship? Will you rejoice in your freedom? And will you embrace selfless benevolence today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. You're, you're awesome. You're incredible. And Lord, we are so, so, so undeserving, but Lord, we are so grateful that you would love us enough to reveal your truth. And I just pray as we, as we think about Galatians chapter 2, Lord, we think about the fellowship in our lives. God, do we have someone to hold us accountable? Someone to rebuke us whenever we veer off the path? Someone to correct us in love? Do we have someone to encourage us and to spur us on towards the cross? And Lord, if we're a believer, do we have somebody that we're pouring into God, let us grapple with this question. And God, I'm just asking you, even for myself, are we making the moment better? Are we being your ambassadors? If not, God, teach us to repent. Teach us to repent, God, so that we can serve those who are financially, those who are relationally, and those who are spiritually poor. God, we love you. And we're desperate for you in Jesus' name. Amen.